Welcome to the Book Blast podcast and our international podcast series, Bridging the Divide, Translation and the Art of Empathy. We are showcasing a selection of the best writing in translation from around the world being published this year in the UK by 10 leading independent houses along with a special guest feature. Today I am interviewing Lars Mitting about his latest novel, The Bell in the Lake, the first of a trilogy. The author of the international non-fiction bestseller Norwegian Wood and an historical novel, The Sixteen Trees of the Somme, Lars Mitting is joined by his translator, Deborah Dawkin. This interview is being recorded via Zoom during the COVID-19 lockdown. So, good afternoon, Lars and Deborah. Why tell stories? Well, I always had that urge since I was a child to when something exciting had happened. I wanted to rush to the house to some friends and tell them, you know what just happened? And <laughs> that's always been uh, an urge in me, I think. And also to the aspect of playing with the language is another part of it. Uh, and uh, But most of all, there's a sense that I keep people alive when I do do it, keep stories of people past alive. The setting of The Bell in the Lake is a village of Butangan on the steep slopes above Lake Lolgen. It is rural, remote, impoverished, wild and beautiful, and its inhabitants resolutely adhere to ancient customs and a traditional way of life. Did you grow up in a rural or urban community? Rural. Uh, it's a village of about 4,000 people. Nearly all of us, when I grew up, uh, I'm born in 68, so during the 70s, we uh, we really could use both the uh, forests and the mountain areas and the r- rivers to fish without anyone uh, supervising us or uh, say it was a very low level of uh, say of control and um, uh, we could more or less connect to whatever we liked in in nature without anyone stopping us and uh, so i remember that as a so as a year so of, of much freedom really where we could uh, do more or less what we wanted, but they also with the responsibility of not uh, overstepping the, the limits into the dangerous terrain. That's, uh, that's what I remember most profoundly. So what was the dangerous terrain? When fishing, for example, I remember that we would uh, always try to get across the river to a better spot for fishing. And the river was oh, yeah. wild, and uh, sometimes when we were fishing alone, I remember we were drawn out by the currents and uh, ended up wet all over. So there was an element of danger in it, but uh, also so very different from today, where we more or less try to supervise everything that happens. The respect of nature as a great force. Yeah, and you, we sort of very early got to... Uh, well, so get, get a connection with, uh, mm. with the forces of nature. And being part of it, as you said, rather than trying to dominate and control it, which is rather crazy. You cannot. Um, <laughs> which languages were spoken at home as you grew up? Was your family multilingual? No, at home it was uh, only Norwegian. But we have two variants of uh, Norwegian, the book, more than the Nynorsk. And uh, I got to learn both of them from uh, when I was just a child. And that gives uh, 
well, there's a richness into the language that comes when you master both of them. So I, I was lucky with that. But later on, I uh, I was fascinated by by English uh, literature the most. When you were growing up, what books had an impact on you? I loved the adventurous fiction. I read Jules Verne and I read Daniel Defoe. Uh, I remember when uh, the TV show The Mole, <laughs> when they stopped airing that on Norwegian television, I think more or less than my adult life began, because I didn't watch children's television off, after that. <laughs> so I went to the library and I remember from the age of 10, I read vast amounts of non-fiction. Uh, and later on, I moved into the, say, the English and um, especially the American writers. So I remember reading Child of God by Cormac McCarthy when I was very young and I didn't understand anything from it. Then I shifted to, well, writers like Steinbeck and Hemingway. Then gradually built my way into the, well, say the deeper layers of fiction. To what extent is being a journalist essential training for a would-be writer? I, I remember from very early that I had the urge to, to write fiction, but I was extremely critical to everything that I wrote, and there was a big barrier for me to, um, to go into that terrain. So in my early years, I wrote for newspapers, uh, and there's, uh, there's an advantage of having worked for uh, you know, newspaper writing when, uh, when it comes to uh, the ability of making research and say exploring and harnessing your own curiosity, but for writing fiction, I really had to uh, get rid of uh, all the say the engine that was in me uh, for uh, writing fiction and, and shift to a different kind of engine. So um, it, it wasn't much of an advantage really for the for the craft itself, but for the research it was. Germany has an invasive presence in the Bell and the Lake in the shape of cosmopolitan young architect Gerhard Schonauer, sent by the Dresden Academy of Arts with the aim of dismantling the 700-year-old stave church on the shores of the lake and reconstructing it in Dresden. How representative is this of the relationship of Norway and Germany past and present? It was extremely strong at that, uh, at that time. And... Uh... That's yeah, this is in the 1880s, of course. Yeah, 1880s, yes. And all the way up uh, until, as we know, the war, when, uh, say, the cultural focus of, of Norway shifted into the Anglo-American focus that, that we have today. But back then, Germany was the country where, um, and, uh, and the language that you had to master to, uh, well, to be someone in Norway. Um, I remember my grandfather, too, he wanted to study engineering in 1905 and he had to learn German first because the best textbooks were only written in, in German. And we had a great deal of uh, tourism in the early years uh, to Norway. But most important for, for the book was the way that the Germans understood Norway in ways that Norwegians didn't understand themselves. So. It's absolutely true, uh, the story in the book where he comes to rescue a old stave church uh, that is to be torn down by Norwegians who doesn't understand. I would say there are a lot of, uh, lot of connections 
also on the mythological level, because several of the uh, old myths are the same uh, between the or Old Norse and the Old uh, Germanic uh, sagas. If you look at uh, the Ring of the Nibelungen and uh, also Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, they are all uh, rooted in the in the same material, which is uh, Old Norse uh, legends. Is the removal and reconstruction of the church based on a true story? There are two true stories that I investigated. One incident was in from 1842 when uh, when a German consortium, led by a, a Norwegian professor in arts, um, went to Norway to. Uh, well, they actually bought the wreck of an old slave church and uh, and brought it uh, by ship to uh, to Germany, and the plan was to uh, to re-erect it in Berlin, uh, but yeah. they couldn't agree when when finally the materials came there after a lot of problems and the ship wrecked once but it didn't sink but uh, they, in the end they managed to get to to Germany, uh, but then they couldn't agree so. <laughs> After several years, they finally rebuilt it uh, in in the mountain region, where it still stands today. They have made it a bit like uh, we, we call it uh, Disneyfying it, a um, product of uh, an image of what it should be an adventure. But the uh, and and the other story was is quite recent when they um, some Norwegian. Norwegians bought a church that had been uh, built in uh, in Norway and then moved to uh, the United States for an <laughs> exhibition. Okay. They made a copy about 120 years ago. And so <laughs> there we had a Norwegian slave church, a very good uh, or well-built uh, church too, right in the right in the Midwest. And they bought it and rebuilt it in Norway. Uh, they were they finished it two years ago, but they had a lot of problems that I was lucky enough to get to carefully observe and, and reuse in my book. Tell us about the legend of the two sisters and the sister bells, and what inspired you to turn their story into such an epic novel. That's the most powerful and the, say the purest DNA in the book is is that mm. story and. Um, what is true is that it has been told in various um, or in a few variations in uh, in my home home village for nearly 300 years there is no direct evidence that the sisters has lived but uh, one of the church bells in um, at home uh, is said to be forged in memory of one of the sisters oh. uh, and there are various explanations on what happened to the other bell. So there's a rich uh, folklore uh, built around this. And uh, I worked and uh, or uh, what you say, uh, well, it, to me, it in, evolves into a much bigger story. But uh, say, the, as I said, the DNA and the, mm -hmm. the, the power of it really comes from very old roots in the in the oral tradition at home. What were your sources for the pagan, Viking and Christian folklore myths and legends? Did your research involve talking to local people as well as doing archive research? When I made, uh, made the story, I, uh, I invented uh, what I like to call a shadow landscape of, yeah. uh, of the real landscape. So I invented a geography that would, uh, would suit the story. 
If you go to my uh, my home village, uh, Lingebu and Fåvang in Gudbrandsdalen, you will certainly recognize everything that's described in the book, but you won't find the the actual place. <laughs> but it's important for me to, uh, since since the people in the book is so shaped by by the nature, I also wanted to uh, to have the geography as an independent, fully fictional place. The backdrop of large-scale industrialization and emigration to North America from the 1860s onwards is evoked in the way the novel's heroine, Astrid Heckne, longs to escape poverty and a life marked by suffering, despite being one of eight kids and her family owning one of the larger debt-ridden farms. To what extent are there parts of Norway still wedded to ancient rural ways today? Does not being a member of the European Union have a conservationist aspect? In our daily life, uh, I don't think it's much different and, but, uh, uh, than to other European countries. What, what there is is that there's a spirit of uh, independence and also a way of um, identifying ourselves with nature. It touches mm. what I spoke, on in, uh, spoke about in the early beginning. We always like to put ourselves in a position where we can battle nature and where we can, uh, say, endure some hardship. Uh, we have this uh, quite unique uh, tradition of uh, cabins in the mountains. That's the first aspiration of any Norwegian when he, right. he or she gets their wages, that they want to save up money so they can buy a cabin in the huh. mountains. So, And you also, build it, well, you build you, your own cabin. Earlier on, yeah. for for the past generation, that was uh, that was the thing to do. You would build they, your own cabin. Yes, they, they did. But uh, the Norwegian of today and my generation, we are much less able, really, in, in the crafts. Well, we, we do not have the... Um... <laughs> Building a cabin perhaps isn't so easy. No, and, uh, and all but the idea really of the uh, of the generation before me was to do as much as possible on your own house and your own cabin, mm. and only uh, by hired help if you absolutely need to. <laughs> and that, yeah. that has the last uh, thirty years. In some Scandinavian countries, like Finland, isn't it a legal obligation to have a wood burning stove? Hence the importance of wood cutting, or or is it Norway? It Same is thing. Norway. I don't think Finland has it, but Norway has it. You have a house more than 50 square meters, you need to have a second source of heating in case there is a power down, because that's a rule that it's intended to calm down the society in case of an emergency. We first meet Astrid when she accompanies an elderly parish pauper named Clara Mitting to church. Are there autobiographical elements to the narrative? Do many of the characters resemble those you knew in real life when you were growing up? Yeah, there are uh, a number of, of people that you will uh, vaguely recognize if you go to my hometown. But the strangest of them all, Clara Mitting, uh, is is pure purely fictional. In in the um, in the novel, I use uh, I use uh, existing family names on all the characters. And uh, I had to use my own family name on the strangest character of them all, because she, uh, well, she has the uh, hardest and most brutal fate of them all. 
Astrid is attractive, resilient and feisty and is drawn to ambitious pastor Kai Schweigard, who wants to replace the stave church with a newer modern one, and cosmopolitan young architect Gerhard Schonauer from Dresden, who in a sense comes to rescue the stave church. Can you describe a couple of your favourite incidents in the book which exemplify her differing romantic relationship with each and why it is that she ends up in the arms of one and not the other? Well, one favourite scene of mine is that is the one where Austria is showing that her rural skills are actually much stronger than uh, this uh, preacher with his long education and his uh, high position in, in society. And that is where a group of hunters are trying to, to trick the preacher. And uh, we, we cannot go too deeply into the story, but in those days it was the obligation of the preacher to pay money for uh, when someone had killed an animal of prey <laughs> uh, because they were uh, they were the only um, the outpost of civilization were, were the preachers <laughs> I, I like the scene where she is uh, actually helping the preacher to understand that uh, the hunters are trying to, to trick him and she uses knowledge that is so familiar to her that she doesn't think much about this being an, any special at all but for him it's um, well it's a complete revelation and uh, extremely long view in into into a way of life that he hasn't understood at all and my other scene is uh, where she is meeting uh, Gerhard Schönauer and they are trying to um, uh, learn each other Norwegian and German and they have an old uh, old dictionary and they oh, jump yes. between Norwegian and uh, and German and she deliberately uh, leads him to uh, to the letter um, uh, K kiss <laughs> Nietzsche famously asserted that God is dead and that man is in his death throes is this reflected in the story of Pastor Kai Schwiegard well he becomes a really troubled man during the book and it is true the phrases you mentioned they are true for that stage in his life and also for the stages in his life that will come after this book is finished but i have i have big plans for him so it's not it's not the the final story of of him what I like about it is that he, he has lost his faith in God, but still he has uh, an agreement with God that they will speak again in 40 years and then uh, see if they can come to a new agreement. <laughs> the Bell in the Lake is part one of a trilogy. How far are you on the second volume and third volume? Can you give us a sneak peek at what your fans can look forward to? First and foremost, I want this to be a family saga, not not a traditional family saga, but a story of um, an obsession that is that goes the, that is handed down the generations. In the next book, we will meet. Uh, I can't say too much, but we will meet uh, two members of of the family. The reader who has finished the book will know who they are. And, and it will probably take place between, it will probably start when in around 1905 and go a bit further into that century. And for the third book, I cannot say how it will end, but that, that is where everything will be wrapped up 
and even the traces from the from the earliest earliest parts of the story which originates in the uh, 16th century all of them will uh, uh-huh. come to action at, at the very end as the author of norwegian wood the internationally best-selling guide to chopping and storing firewood how long did it take to achieve success and how do you keep a cool head under pressure i think i'm lucky that i uh, started writing when i was in my or writing fiction when i was in my my 30s because if the success of norwegian wood has had come when i was just say 25 years old i i wouldn't have known i think the direction uh, for the next book and it, it came, of course, as a complete surprise to, uh, to me uh, <laughs> and to, to everyone. The main, uh, the main thing to keep a cool head, I think, is to, for, to have an idea of what to do next. So that when all the dust has settled, you know that you want to go down to the workplace again and continue on a story that you really want to write. And for me, that was uh, The Sixteen Trees of the Sun. It's a story of... Uh, young man who lost his parents during a very strange accident uh, on the battlefields of uh, of the Somme, uh, one of the old battlefields from the First World War. Uh, they died when he was just three years old and no one knew why they would go to, to that site of the battlefield. And after their death, their son, the main character in the book, uh, was lost for four days and found in a completely different place of France. That's the backstory. And when he's uh, 22 years old, he wants to uh, say, unwrap what really happened. And that, that brings him back uh, to uh, two generations, all the way back to the First World War and also the Second World War. Uh, so it's a really big web of interlinked incidents that is, I would say, it's more of a um, say, a mystery novel without without a crime. <laughs> Deborah, your background is that you are an actress, you have translated Ibsen and are connected with the British Library. How has all this been beneficial when translating Lars Mitting's The Bell in the Lake? Well, I don't think you can translate Ibsen without coming out of, out of the process somewhat stronger in your hand with dialogue. I think the British Library is probably less important because that's to do with my research side. A translator is faced by singular challenges when translating literature in terms of fidelity to the original, lexicon, localization, the period and the author's meaning. How did you find a balance? Larsh is very kind to his translators. First of all, he gives them <laughs> he gives them a, a, a copy of the text which has notes in it mm-hmm. about most of the things that a translator is going to that a translator is going to find difficult. Having mm-hmm. said that, I also I have to say there's very little research that one has to do these days which isn't out there on Google. There is so much information. Um, okay. Obviously, but on the other hand, one of the things that I really did, I was very lucky that I had was a very I have a very beautiful book, illustrated book of. Starship Gerb the State Churches. And this book is is a book I've had for a long time because I've always loved the State Churches. And it was it was it was very useful to me in the sense that it kind of gave me that visual input. I'm very much a translator who likes to 
uh, it's almost as if I have to see the text in, visual in your mind's eye. You have to, yes. yes. And I think that is also yeah, related visualize it. as a, a theatre person. Because mm. for me, a text is really, I see it very, in a sense, very the, uh, three-dimensionally, almost theatrically. Mm. I, I see a novel in terms of scenes, in terms of development, in terms of tempo and changes mm. of atmosphere mm. and pacing and yeah and also in terms of development of character you know where do your characters go which is a very theater very theatrical way of looking at things through the story of the 700 year old stave church and a series of incidents woven together like the threads in a local heckner weave tapestry we find out about local folklore and dialect and the gritty reality of highland life in the 1880s to what extent did you work with Lars Mitting to address issues in terms of style, technicalities and cultural translation? Initially, we talked a lot. In a sense, I suppose, in that process, you kind of make sure that you're both working in the same direction, that yes. I've understood what his priorities are as yes. an author. One of the things that I felt was very, very central to my approach to the whole translation was the orality of the text, the, the mm. fact that, as, as I mean, Lars has expressed himself, that for him, writing is so closely linked to storytelling. And one of the things that really struck me before I'd even talked to Lars, and when I just read the book, and which is part of the reason I fell in, in love with it, was that it, it bypasses a literary convention. And it feels like storytelling. So many people have said that they pick the novel up, which is my experience of it, they pick the novel up and they read it straight. It's a very hard thing to do, historical fiction and folklore. You could fall into slightly ye olde twee kitsch literary cliché, but somehow it does not slip into that at all. The writing is very robust and muscular, Yet there is also a sensitivity. That was what my aim was. Um, to keep the text very um, muscular. And also, as well, think words, I, I also chose to use words that were, for example, folk rather than people. Because mm. the word people breaks mm. the sentence up. Folk mm. is very close to Norway and it has a lot of implications about community. I resisted it, and it was, you know, these things that I debated, of course, they're not kind of easy decisions. Well, I didn't ever call the tapestries tapestries, weaves. Actually, I've called it a tapestry, it's a weave, indeed. No, and it is a tapestry, yeah. but I yeah. felt that I wanted to go away from that slightly latinate. I worked with that, and, you know, for example, the kind of um, continuous present, the I am running. Mm. I tend, the Norwegian doesn't, language doesn't have that. But I'll avoid it. So you get this simplicity, this darkness to the text. One of the problems that there was is the problem of the dialect, because Lars uses a lot of dialect. There's no point at which he kind of launches into complete dialect. He uses it as a touch here and there. And that created a real problem to me, because in as you read it in the Norwegian, that enriches the text. It, it, it mm. takes it gives you a little touch of the past and it brings colour. So I didn't want to lose that, but on the other hand, he sprinkles it throughout the book 
within the narrative yeah. and within the dialogue, but never uses it very heavily. Problem as well, of course, is that each individual thing is almost impossible to translate because yeah. that which is dialectal yeah. one language is not necessarily going to be what another oh, language. No, that's the classic. Yeah, yeah, you want to keep the essence. Exactly. So I chose, and I discussed this with Large as well and with the editors, using dialect is always kind of a last yeah. call for a translator mm. because you don't want to break the belief of the reader of where of this imaginary place of this mm. place which is in another country you don't want to suddenly bring your reader to yeah. you know to, to manchester <laughs> or that would be too specific where i slow solved it in the end was i actually reined in i only used dialect really in the dialogue and i allowed myself to create a dialect which is a simplified version. So I did a an across the board looking at some old collections of dialect. So that 19th century collections of dialect, which allowed me to kind of gradually absorb a kind yeah. of wider set so that I felt it wasn't too closely from one's one place. So I'm, I'm hoping to God it works. The editors enjoyed it. <laughs> what was the most challenging part of translating Lars Mitting's epic novel into English? I think that was the, the, the most, that was the, the, the biggest risk. I don't know whether it was the biggest challenge. <laughs> you know, that was the bit where I had it, my heart in my mouth and thought, am I doing the right thing? But also what I enjoyed most was this, was creating this sense of storytelling. Mm. Once I had really understood that voice, and also Lash kind of gave me several pushes. You know, there'd be times where I'd go, well, what do you think, Lash? And Lash was going, oh, for goodness sake. Yeah. <laughs> go for it. Go for it. Do it. Go for it. Yeah, go. it Great. You know, tell the story. Why is Mitting such a special writer in your view? And in what ways is writing universal? Obviously, first, he's a wonderful storyteller. And there's nothing showy in his storytelling. And I think what's important is he creates an, an intimacy with the reader. Because it is his voice, it creates an intimacy which allows us as 21st century sceptical, cynical readers to drop our guard and enter the mindset of these villagers 140 years ago and to accept them as they are, to accept their superstitions and fears and different, their different view of the world, their different worldview. How does translation unite people and increase our empathic capacities? And can translation change perceptions of our world? I think that's one of the things that, whether that's what translation does in general, I'm not mm. sure, because mm. I think it's unique to mm. Lars's way of mm. writing. You don't feel that this is a narrator who's distanced from his subject. He pulls you. He pulls you right in there, so that you are. You are. It's demanded of you that you really understand these people and that you live with them. A bit like the. A bit like the German artist. You know, we are the yeah. German. We are the sophisticated ones, and he gets drawn in. Actually, so does the pastor get drawn. They both get drawn in. They're very well educated men. They both get drawn in to understand the village's perspective, 
more and to have more respect for it. And I think that this respect for the perspective mm. of the villagers is actually very important because, and this is why I think Lush is very much the writer of the moment, in the sense that we are reassessing our relationship to nature. And also Astrid is wonderful. You got into the head of a woman. She's a rounded character. She is feisty, makes mistakes and can be absolutely infuriating. She's very real. Where does she come from, Lars? Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. I, I was really yeah. anxious when I was... She was the first female uh, main character that I have ever written. I wondered uh, how should I approach it and do I need to do anything special and how do I balance the uh, qualities that we usually see as masculine being say like uh, eagerness and a um, desire to to get your will and how do I balance that with the more say the classical feminine uh, qualities mm-hmm. and I found that Really, I don't have to think much about that. Uh, I just have to expose her to some sort of injustice and then follow her path uh, through the through through her vulner- vulnerable sides. Because obviously, as a woman, you can carry children, and uh, that will uh, mm. uh, you you cannot run from the responsibility as you can as as a man. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah. s- simply it was just those elements that. Uh, that were crucial in my, uh, say, in my mind. Mitting uses the love story to explore the clash between tradition and modernity. Is there any one scene or section of the narrative that shows this most of all? Yeah, I'm not sure whether it's the scene where you see the conflict, but it becomes. I remember reading it as it because you kind of you've kind of settled into this village and suddenly you're mm-hmm. transported. Last transports you to Germany. I don't want to give too much away, but they are so different. They judge Norway from afar, and I found that very challenging to how how we view history and how we, you know, how we might ourselves view our past. How respectful are they really? The stave church is almost like a feather in the cap. There are layers of pagan, Viking and Christian beliefs and mysticism, and somehow there's a respect for that from, from the young man from Dresden. Yet one feels the others do not respect it at all. Lars, was your research for all of that from local people talking to villagers or people in your village, parish records? It is very subtly woven in. The spooky atmosphere in the church feels very real. Well, I was, I'm was i lucky enough to know the people who guard the old stave church at home. Oh. <laughs> so I was allowed to climb the bell tower all alone in the dark wow. once. Wow. And uh, Whoa. that is one of the most striking experiences in, in my life, really. And uh, I felt that I was doing something that wasn't... Well, I, I, I really felt that I stepped... that I crossed a line uh, there in, in that sacred really? building, which uh, where I really could... I'm not very superstitious, superstitious <laughs> but, but a bit. And it was very clear to me that if there's a, a place where you can feel the centuries and the and the power of it, it's in the bell tower of a state church. I had a lot of talks with uh, with old people in my in my hometown. 
a lot of the stories are things I remember from childhood that my grandparents' generation would tell. And some of the wildest stories there are actually true. There's a story of someone moving a newly built uh, cow shed and they have to tear it all down. It's built in stone and they have to tear it down and move it about a um, hundred feet to the north because they believe that uh, there are um, some creatures, uh, some underground creatures living there that, that scares the cows. And uh, that actually happened oh my in my hometown in uh, 1902. They built a cow shed and the cows wouldn't get calm, so they tore down the whole building and moved it to about uh, about 100 feet further away. And when they did that, all the, co- the cows became calm and quiet, and it's still there today. Please could you read to us one scene or one page that exemplifies the essence of Mitting's writing and voice and spirit in your view as his translator? The author will then read it in Norwegian. I've taken the beginning. Is that okay with you, Olaj? I think you're ready with the beginning, aren't you, as well? You can choose. That's fine. So hopefully this will just uh, the taster and draw people in. The girls who shared a skin. The birth was hard. The hardest ever, perhaps and that in a village where many births might compete for that title. The mother was large, but not until the third day of her confinement did they realize she was carrying twins. The details of delivery, how long the screams reverberated in the long log farmhouse, or how the womenfolk actually got the babies out, all this was forgotten. Too ghastly to be told, too ugly to be remembered. The mother tore and bled to death, and her name vanished from history. Forever remembered, however, were the twins and their deformity. They were joined from the hip down. But that was all. They breathed, they cried, they were lively. Their parents were from the Heckner farm, and the girls baptised Halfred and Gunhild Heckner. They grew, laughed a lot. And were never a bother, but a joy to each other, to their father, to their siblings, to the village. The Heckner twins were put before the loom early and sat for long days, their forearms flying in perfect time between warp and weft, so swiftly that it was impossible to see who was threading the yarn through their weave at any one moment. The pictures they wove were uniquely beautiful, often mysterious, and soon their weaves were traded for silver, for livestock. At that time, nobody thought of putting their mark on such a craftwork, and later there were many who paid a high price for a Heckner weave, even when it was uncertain that it was genuine. The most famous Heckner weave shows Skrupenathar, the night of the great scourge, the locals' version of the Day of Judgment loosely related to the old Norse prophecy of Ragnarok. A sea of flames would turn the night into day, and when everything was burned up and the night darkened again, the earth's surface would be scoured, leaving nothing but bare rock. And come sunrise, both the living and the dead would be swept to their doom. This weave was given to the church and hung there for generations before it vanished overnight through locked doors. I will read in uh, my local dialect. So I will do a slight retranslation from the Norwegian into, into dialect. 
Jenton som delte hu. Fødselen var hard. Kanskje den hardeste noen gang, og det til bygd der barsland gjorde den rangen stridig. Mora var stor, men ikke for den tre av dagene i VR skjønte de at hun bar tvillinger. Og hvordan forløsninger gikk til, hvor lenge skrikene jalla i temmerstugga, og hvordan kvinnfolkene rundt og faktisk fikk ungene ut. Alt dette ble glemt. Det var for ille til å forteljes og for stygt til å minnes. Mora revna og blødde til døde, og navnet hennes ble borte fra historia. Det som ble huksa for godt var tvillingene og skavanken dømmers. For de var i god pokse, ifra hoftene og ned. Men det var jo alt. De pusta, skrek og var freske i hugget. Foreldrene var fra garn hekne, og jentene var døft halvfrid og gonil hekne. De voks jemt, skratta mye og var ikke til hinder, men til glede. For en annen, for faren, for skyssene og for bygda. Heknesysteren var tidlig plassert fram av vevgrinna og satt lange dogger mens de fire armene flagg omforent mellom tråder og renning. Så fort at det var ord å se og ikke som i øyeblikket smettet gående på plass i bildeveven. Og motivene ble besyndelig vakre, ofte gåtefulle, og arbeidendømmers ble myttet bort i sølv eller husdyr. Og på den tida var ingen som tenkte på å merke håndarbeid på noe vis, og sia var det flere som betalte en høy pris for en hekneveve, enda det var osikkert om den var ekte. Og den mest kjente hekneveven var i avbildning til å skråpe natta, den lokale forestillingen om dommedag, løslig nedarvet fra de nordrønne profetiene om Ragnarok. I flammehav skolen dannet natt til dag, og når alt var nedbrent og natta på ny mørk, skulle jorda bli skråpet ned til bært fjell, og levernes og døde bli skudd til ett følge til doms ved soloppgang. Og denne vevnaden ble gjett åt kjørsja og heng der i generasjoner, før hun forsvant over natta gjennom leste døre. Thank you so much, Lars. Maybe you will come to Britain when the next part of your trilogy comes out. Oh, I'm ready. And Deborah, thank you very much. Ben in the Lake is published by MacLehose Press and is available from online outlets such as Waterstones, Foils, Daunt Books, Hive and Amazon. To buy The Bell in the Lake from your local independent bookseller, you can find your nearest store by visiting booksellers.org.uk forward slash bookshop search. This podcast is brought to you by Bookblast. For more bookishness between episodes, visit online journal The Bookblast Diary or find us on Twitter at Bookblast. Special thanks to sound editor Rupert Such, theme tune composer Edward Campbell, author Lars Schmitting, translator Deborah Dawkin for taking the time to do the interview. And thank you all for listening to this week's episode of the Book Blast podcast. Mm-hmm.